Well, that's an introduction to our discussion point today, and I put a post up on our Facebook page last week um, just announcing that we were going to focus on the whole issue of what is meant by, by glory. You see, the, the title I've actually put up there is Glory! <laughs> and uh, the reason why it has the W in there is that Glory is something that makes us glow. But um, I put a cross through the W because, of course, you don't spell it G-L-O-W-R-Y. But um, I think that the relationship between glory and glowing is a very close relationship and is often brought out in the experience of characters in the Word of God. What actually prompted my, my thinking on this was just a, what was really a throwaway line last, last weekend. Last, last Sunday we, we didn't have our normal um, service. We, we actually spent most of our time last Sunday looking at a video by uh, Chris Vallotton from Bethel Church in Reading, California. And the title of his presentation was From Pauper to Prince. And towards the end of his presentation, he asked this question, if you don't have the glory, then how can you give it to God? And uh, that prompted me to think, you know what? We should this week actually talk about glory. Because it's a word that's just bantered around in church all the time. And uh, you listen to preachers on TV or if you do like we do and download podcasts and so on, you'll often hear this word glory used. And uh, many, many times, you know, preachers exhort us to give God the glory. Well, what does it mean to give God the glory? I actually reckon we should understand what it means. And before we can really give him the glory, we need to understand what it means. And uh, actually, uh, the wor- words that are translated glory in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're used about 400 times. So the, the word is a pretty common word in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want to talk about glory in terms of it being an attribute of God and an attribute of humanity. And uh, despite the fact that there are literally, you know, hundreds of verses in the Bible that uh, point to this word glory, I'm only going to use a very small number because the human mind can really only deal with about seven new ideas at the one time. So obviously we're not going to get through everything in the half hour or so that we have this morning. But that's why we call these things discussion points. They're not really sermons, it's not really preaching. We really want to encourage you to go away and to think about the points that we make and to actually use them as a basis for discussion. And as we grow, um, we'll probably devote one night during the week to actually getting around the table and seriously discussing the discussion point from our Sunday time together. In uh, Ezekiel's vision... And uh, it's a long, long vision. It's um, in Ezekiel chapter chapter 10. It's the vision that he has, which is often referred to as the vision of wheels. He saw a, a wheel within a wheel. And um, it's, uh, it, it, in Ezekiel, he's actually looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And so this is one of those 
um, prophetic book which is looking forward to the end of human history. And uh, chapter 10 goes something like this. I've only put verse 4 up there because that's the important one, but I really think it's important to get a bit of a feel for the context. So uh, Ezekiel is having this, this vision and then he says, Just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. So this man is obviously Jesus. And I looked, says Ezekiel, and there in the firmament, that's the heavens above, there was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, the he, by the way, is God, go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city, the city being Jerusalem. And he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim were standing at the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Now, then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. So this is possibly the most direct reference in the Bible to glory as an attribute of God. It's part of who God is. And as Jeanette was uh, saying in the communion message, when, when, when Israel came out of Egypt and as they were spending all that time in the, in the, uh, in the wilderness, there was a cloud by day and the light by night and she said the glory of God was represented by that light and remember when Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments didn't his face shine because he'd been in the presence of God he'd actually been in the glory of God as he received from him the Ten Commandments so the glory of God is often associated with light. The court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. So glory is something that is attached to God. It is something about God and will come to the exact nature of what glory is shortly. Glory is also an attribute of humanity. And look, I know theologians and preachers down the ages that had a lot of trouble accepting this idea. And I'm sure there'll be many who don't agree with me. But glory, yes, it is an attribute of God, but it's an attribute of humanity as well. And I think this is the key scripture. Let me just read from Psalm 8. I, I, I actually think Psalm 8 is one of the most important pieces of scripture in the Bible because that is the psalm where the place of humanity in creation is defined for us. It's only a short psalm as well. Just got to find it now. Here we are. Psalm 8, I'm just going to read from verse 3 uh, to the end of, of the psalm. And this is a psalm which is attributed to King David. When I consider your 
heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained? What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honour. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Look at this. This is a clear reference back to Genesis chapter 1, everybody knows where I always go, back to Genesis chapter 1 and the creation mandate where God actually delegated royal authority and power to humanity, right? We have a royal delegation from God and that involved us having dominion over everything that he had created. All the animals, all the birds, all the fish in the sea, all the minerals under the earth, all the trees growing, everything, everything that God had created in the earth was given over to our dominion. And here in Psalm 8, this is what it says about us. You, God, you have crowned us with glory and honour. Well, if you have an inferiority complex, what I want you to do between now and when we meet next Sunday is meditate on that word. Write it on a piece of paper, stick it over the horn in your car, you know, on your steering wheel, so that every time you look down, you read it. Paste it up on your refrigerator or stick it on a mirror. Read it over and over and over again. If you don't think you're important, Have a look at what God says about you. He has crowned you. He has crowned me with glory and honour. That's what God thinks of you. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks of you. The most important person's opinion is God's opinion and that's what his opinion is of you. So God, in a premeditated act, conferred glory and honour upon all of humanity. And actually this applies to whether you're saved or not. The people who are not saved, they don't understand this because they haven't had a revelation by the Holy Spirit of the fullness of its meaning. But actually every person on this planet has been crowned by God because this is something that happened before Adam and Eve sinned. So it's pre-original sin. Alright, that means it applies to everybody, saved or not. So, glory is an attribute of God and glory is an attribute of humanity. Congratulations, you are glorious. You have the glory, alright? You have the glory. I love that word. I'd love to go to America and preach. (laughs) Wouldn't I be good, you reckon? So, alright, Let, let's get down to do what I, what my natural inclination is actually to start with this, you know, because I'm, I'm an academic and academics always start by defining their terms. But actually for most people that's pretty boring, eh? Alright? So this is the boring bit. 
This is the boring bit. What does the word actually mean? Well, in the Old Testament, it appears about 200 times in 16 different contexts, but the majority of contexts we're talking about are either an attribute of God or something he has created, or an attribute of humanity. And the, the Hebrew word is uh, kabode. And um, it literally means weight in a good sense. That's what it literally means, although it's not generally used uh, literally in the Bible. It's, it's used as a, a figurative way of, way of speaking. So uh, the other point I want to make about it is weight in a good sense. Because most of the time, you know, when we talk about weight, it has negative connotations, doesn't it? You know, because I'm weighed down by the burdens I carry through life. I'm, I'm weighted down by all of the stuff I carry, all the bad stuff that happens in the world. You know, I'm weighted down by the volume of work I face. And when I go into my workplace on Monday morning, I'm weighted down by worries and cares and woes and financial bills, you know, all of those kinds of things. But today, in the Hebrew, it's a good weight. It's a good weight. And uh, it's figuratively applied often in the context of, of honour, of, of good things, of abundance, you know, of all the wonderful promises of God. They're, they're weighty in a good sense. So this, this word is used in contexts such as, you know, splendour. You would have seen those hippie astrums outside in our front garden, those big, bold, showing-off type red flowers, right? There's a splendour about them. That's the kind of splendour that he's talked about in the, in the Bible, this, this radiance, absolute radiance. If you want to turn the fans on, you're welcome to do that if it's feeling hot. It's uh, used in the sense of wealth, right? Um, often a, often a, a blessing in Old Testament times was, may you have the weight of wealth. That's a good weight, isn't it? Isn't that a good weight? Would you like to be weighed down by wealth? How good would that be? Would you like to be weighed down by the multitudinous nature of your blessings? You know, because God talked about multitudes as a blessing. He said, you know, go forth and fill the earth, replenish the earth. You know, by the way, this is a, a topic for another day, but the kingdom of God works on the basis of multiplication. It works in multiples, not percentage increases. It doesn't, the, the, the kingdom of God doesn't add up. It was never meant to add up. It was always meant to multiply. Isn't that wonderful? It's used in, in the sense of honour, of reputation. You know, someone with a weighty reputation is someone who's known for the good they do or for the great feats that they've achieved over a period of time. So this idea of glory is mixed up with all of these types of ideas. And uh, in ancient Hebrew thinking, to be weighty in reputation, to be weighty in honour, to be weighty in wealth and so on, was a great blessing indeed. And uh, it, it is a way of describing God. See, an attribute of God is glory. He's the ultimate in splendour. He's the ultimate in wealth. He's the ultimate in multiplication. 
He's the ultimate in honour. He's the ultimate in reputation. There can never be a standard higher than the standard that God himself meets. In the New Testament, the word doxa, from which we get doxology, doxa is used about 170 times in six different contexts. And it literally means honour arising from the weight of good opinion. Now, you'll see it's not quite the same thing in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. That's readily explained, not by the fact that there was necessarily shifting ideas, but a different language was used to write down the the New Testament. And, And you'll often see when those ancient manuscripts are translated into uh, into English, you'll see that different translations of the Bible use slightly different words. And that's really a function of the language. Nothing's changed as far as God is concerned. All right? So our language is sometimes actually imperfect to fully uh, represent the heart of God that was uh, revealed in the very earliest of the textual writings. But you can see the linkage, can't you, between the idea of honour arising from the weight of good opinion and weight in a good sense in uh, Old Testament terms. Um, If I can just go back very briefly to this this slide here in terms of an attribute of humanity. So now we, we know what the word glory actually means. It's interesting, I think, that in most translations of the Bible, this line here, if you have made him a little lower than the angels, actually, original, in the original Hebrew, the word Elohim is used, which means God. Right? Now, most of the old manuscripts that are used to base modern translations of the Bible on, they actually use uh, terms that mean angels. But if you go right back to the most ancient of scripts, the word Elohim is used, which, which is one of the Hebrew words for God. Now, I'm not going to make a doctrine out of this because I'm not a theologian, I don't understand ancient languages, but I just think it's worth thinking, thinking on this. Maybe we have been made just a little lower than God because we represent him. We're, we've been made in his image and his likeness. That's the sense in which we are just a little below God. We're not God. We're representative of God because we carry the same attributes as God, including the attribute of glory, because he's crowned us with glory. Whoops, let me go back here. Okay. Now, in, in, in the New Testament in particular, there are two main senses, I I talked about the idea of six different um, areas in which the word uh, doxa is used in the New Testament. But there's a a here, what I've called a here and nowness about glory and there's a future sense of glory as well. The here and nowness, um, probably the most often quoted verses from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 and It comes at the end of a long, long discussion about how we've been transferred or translated from life under the law in the Old Testament to life under grace 
in New Testament times. And you know, Paul, many of Paul's epistles really major on the fact that we no longer live under law, but now we live under the grace of God and that God's law has actually been written on our hearts. So the law of God for New Testament Christians is not written on tablets of stone anymore. It's actually written on our hearts. And one of the things that happens, the instant we make that decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ, is that God downloads the spirit of his law into our hearts. And so we actually, as it were, instinctively live our lives according to his law unless we make a conscious choice not to do that. And lots of people make conscious choices not to uh, respond to the law that God has downloaded to their heart. Now, the, the, the idea of us having unveiled faces, that's a reference to a comment made about the law of Moses being read. The, 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 in Israel, of course, they read out the law of, of Moses. And uh, even today, in Messianic Jewish congregations, they, they read from the Torah, they read from the scrolls, or, and often they're very, very old scrolls. And he was saying that it was as if they had veils over their faces. See, they couldn't really, they couldn't really get it. They didn't really, truly understand what the Torah or the law of Moses was all about. But we have the great privilege of understanding it. The veil has been lifted from our faces because God has actually planted his law in our hearts. It's already there. We don't have to do anything to get it other than surrender to Jesus Christ. That's all we have to do. And so Paul says, but we all with unfailed faith, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And uh, look, a lot, there's been a lot written about what this passage means, and I actually went back to a literal translation. This one's called Green's Literal Translation. This is, I'm just showing off now for David and Ainsley because, you know, they know a lot of theology and all that sort of stuff. So this is not for the rest. This is just for them, right? I just want to show off. Uh, but in, in Green's literal translation, this is how that, that verse is translated. But we all with our faith having been unveiled, having beheld the glory of the Lord in a mirror, are being changed into the same image from glory to glory as from the Lord, the Lord Spirit. Now, I might get a little bit excited here. Oh, I'll try not to because there's not a lot of space, eh? But, you see, the way to, the way to actually express glory in the Old Testament was through obeying the law. Alright? Now, this was written at a time when people were making that transition from life under law to life under grace. And, and a lot of the debates that were happening in the early church were about, well, how much of the Torah must we carry over into our, the, the outworking of our Christian faith? So the sense in which we're being changed from glory to glory is actually related to the fact that we're no longer living under the Old Testament law, but we're living under New Testament grace. 
And by the way, if you have a look at the book of Jude, and that's an easy one to read because it's only one chapter, it's about 800 words, it actually says, grace is no excuse for us to sin. Right? So, we can't sin all week, take communion on Sunday and think, well, by grace I'm saved and by grace I'm forgiven. The Bible makes it very clear that grace is no excuse for us to make a conscious choice to actually sin. But you see, what, what's happening here is as, as instead of expressing that crown of glory through obedience to the law in the Old Testament, we actually do it by coming under the Lordship of Christ. And I've mentioned to you guys before, those of you who have heard me preach on what it means to be saved, and this will happen again in the future, no doubt, because I think it is such an important thing for us to understand. When we're saved, our spirit is renewed. That's the sense in which we are a new creation. Our spirit is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we actually have to discipline our body and our soul to come into line with our regenerated spirit. We can't do that on our own. We do it through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We see the image of Christ and it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that changes us to become more and more Christ-like every day. You see, the instant we're saved, we don't become Christ-like except in our spirit. And we have to make a conscious decision to allow the regenerated spirit, as it were, to bubble up and overflow and rule over our soul and our body. That's how we heal the mind. That's how we heal the body by coming to line with our regenerated spirit. And as we allow the Lordship of Christ in our life, we're changed to become more and more like Him. That is, we're changed from glory to glory. And there are three glories in that particular verse and they are all the same Greek word, doxa. Okay? So, see, we can't live a good life on our own. That only happens. You see, we, we, we can't actually be carriers of, you know, the weight of the, the honour that comes with good opinion. We can't be bearers of that except through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we know we, we can't get there by good work. We, we can't, as it were, get up in the morning and decide we're going to do this and this and this and this and this. The only thing we can really decide is we are going to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and be led by the Holy Spirit. So, you blame Christopher Lawton for all of this with our throwaway line in uh, last week's presentation on from uh, pauper to prince. So, there's, this is the here and nowness of glory, right? The, the outworking of glory, the display of glory, our, our bearing of that, that crown of glory that actually comes through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But it is something that is here and now, right? We don't have to wait for some time in the future. And remember, it is God who crowned you with glory and honour. It's got nothing to do with what you think about yourself. It's got nothing to do with what other people think or say about you or what they might do to you. You've got a status before God and that status says you are crowned with glory and honour. This talks about how it's actually outworked in the life of a Christian today and it all happens because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And where is Jesus Christ? He's seated 
at the right hand of the Father. And the right hand means the hand of blessing or the hand of favour. And we're actually, spiritually speaking, seated right next door to Jesus. Ephesians assures us of that. And what does Jesus do? He intercedes on our behalf to our Father in heaven. He's our brother who goes to God on our behalf. That's why we end our prayers with that phrase, in the name of Jesus. That's why we do that. We're recognising that Jesus is our intercessor. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and we're seated right next door to Jesus. And so as we submit to his Lordship, he will do the work in us that is necessary to bring us closer and closer every day to truly reflecting his image in our thoughts, in our words and in our deeds. In a sense, we become holy, we become the carriers of glory by accident. It's, it, in fact, is the product of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's here and now. You don't have to wait for it. It's here and now. There is also a sense in which glory is a future promise. And uh, in Philippians, there are many other verses. There are probably four or five other verses I could use or add to this. But in Philippians, we're assured that our citizenship is in heaven. That's consistent with Ephesians. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not for his first appearance, but this is actually for him to join with us when we die, should he have not come a second time when we die. We wait for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And this also has overtones of that uh, creation mandate as well. It is just such an important idea, this idea that God has delegated authority and power to us. But if I, if I die tomorrow, I, I die in the absolute certainty that at my resurrection I'm going to have a glorious body. Now does that mean I'm going to have the same colour of hair of Jesus? The same shaped nose? The same uh, colour of skin? Probably not. Because glory is not so much a physical attribute, although it's often represented by the idea of light, but glory is that good weight. That's what we're going to be like. What it really means is we're going to be so transformed at our resurrection that we're going to be the exact image and likeness of God. See, the fallen nature of humanity and the fallenness of our world today means that although we are image bearers, we're not perfect image bearers. But the promise here is that at our resurrection we're actually going to be the exact image and likeness of our God and in that sense we're going to attain all those good um, character qualities, all those good uh, qualities that are actually perfect or perfected in God and in Jesus who actually is the exact likeness and image of the Father. So what can we do today? What can we do today? Well, this passage of course is often quoted in the context of uh, glory, the, the, the actual 
uh, discussion here is, is about food and drink, whether we should be eating food which has been um, prayed over or which has been dedicated to gods and all that sort of thing. And uh, the conclusion of the discussion, Paul says, therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So how do we actually do all to the glory of God? The first thing we have to do is to accept that we are crowned with glory. Right? That we, we carry that attribute of God because we're made in his image and likeness. Now when you understand that, that's when you actually begin to act as if you are crowned with glory and honour. And when you're crowned with glory and honour, those good characteristics that we listed a few PowerPoint slides ago, they will manifest in your life. So giving glory to God is not actually about what we do at the beginning of our time together in worship. That's important and that is an element. Alright, that's an element. However, it's manifest actually in what we do day to day, the way we relate to other people, the, the kinds of actions and activities we become involved in when we're outside these four walls and back in the world. So it's what we do from, as it were, Monday to Saturday. That's how we give glory to God. In all that we do, are we imaging God? So are we exercising our creative capacities? Are we developing relationships, deep and meaningful relationships? Relationships indeed that might draw other people into the kingdom of God. Do we have purpose in our lives? You know, God is a God of purpose. Read the Bible if you don't believe that and you'll see that he's got a purpose for the whole of human history. So we, we need to identify the purpose for which God has actually placed us on this planet. And, and finally, finally, are we accepting God's mandate to be moral beings? That doesn't mean are we good people, we're saved people, but what it actually means is that we exercise the capacity God has placed in us to apply wisdom to every decision that we make. To be a moral being is to have the capacity to make decisions and God has actually given us the freedom to make decisions including the freedom to become a follower of Jesus Christ. So what I would say is in, in response to Chris Bolton's, uh, Bolton's challenge you know, if you haven't got the glory how can you give God glory? My, my response to that is we actually have the glory but most people don't realise it, including Christians. They don't realise they have the glory or they read passages like uh, Psalm 8 and their inclination to be humble causes them not to accept it in all of its fullness. But it's not prideful to accept that you are who God says you are. So I think what we can do today is to actually use the glory with which we are crowned. God bless you. I reckon it's time for...